call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 84 of Call It Friend or the podcast where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week myself Andy J. Ritchie and my co-host Donica Tiernan watched two celebrated South Korean films, Bong Joon-ho's Best Picture winner Parasite and Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call It Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. We're live. Yes. Yeah, we're live, folks. We're live. We're alive. Hell yeah. I'm going to go out and say it's it. such an I'll, awkward I'll start. My, 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 <laughs> I mean, you know, I haven't kissed anybody in a while. Well, we could start. We can do that. I see you're topless again. I am topless again. Yeah, it's hot here. Do you know what? One of these films, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of smooching between people of the same gender. Yes, a lot of rumpity pumpity too. I learned uh, a lot. Uh, before, yeah, let's just to hold things <laughs> off. Uh, which one are we going to start with? Well, we have to do it in order. That's the way that it works. We start with the one that won the toss, and then we... By the way, I think we should... Do, oh, okay, first of all, we're going to be talking, as anyone who's listening to this knows, because it's in the, the description of the episode, it's the, the title of the episode, but we're going to be talking about 2019's Parasite, mm. directed by director Bong, Bong Joon-ho. And then also 2016's The Handmaiden by Park Chan-wook. I would just want to say, I, more than ever before, I think people should... Obviously, you should watch these two films before listening yes. to anything that you have to say. But especially these two, more than most of the others. Because I, I listen to one podcast that has, has been biting our shit. And I think we need to call out Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery for straight up biting our style. Yeah, um, but the, yeah, they're they're kind of picking oddly shitty movies <laughs> at the moment. Anyway, they've had well, one or fine. two. I mean, I listened to the episode they did on Moonraker and Firefox, and yes, although it was I've, good. I've seen Moonraker, I've never seen Firefox, and I listened to them talk about it. So I can get on board the I don't need to watch the film; I can just listen to these two people talk. Thing. Yes. And are are we as entertaining as Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery? I think we're more entertaining. No, but yeah, exactly. No, because we are more entertaining. Exactly. Uh, but no, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. <laughs> it's, like, it's sponsored by the whatever it's called, the Quentin Tarantino and his friend Roger Avery, who's obviously not as good as him podcast. Oh, what? They, are they sponsoring our podcast now? It's a, it's one of those dual sponsorship deals. I thought we were sponsored by BlueChew.com. <laughs> we are as well. And on it. But, well, I'm on it, much yeah. like um, much like those Iraq veterans from last week or Afghanistani Indeed. veterans. Correct. Yes, uh, I I uh, tagged the terminal list in okay? a story, uh, giving out about it, and then all of a sudden I got scared because it's written by a Navy SEAL. I did think that was mental that you decided to tag the terminal list and and on Instagram. Yeah, because it's all made by Navy SEALs. Yeah, they're going to come looking for you. And you're yeah, it doesn't matter that Barcelona I live on the top floor. Top off. Yeah, I know. That might fucking put them off a little bit. We'll see. Yeah, but anyway, uh, the terminal list was a big pile of shit. What was not a big pile of shit, uh, these two movies from this week, I thought it was a fucking excellent week. I've seen, I had seen one of them already, obviously, but it was refreshing to see it after the whole... Uh, you know, big buzz of a few years ago where it kind of could kind of get drowned out a little bit. I'm going to loop back to something we were talking 
about last week in order to intro this. Just because, right, so, and we won't include this in next week's What I've Been Watching, because I do feel it intros it well. So I went to see Jordan Peele's latest film, Nope. And, right, I think you were dead right with what you said. Far be it for me to patronize the man, but uh, I do feel sorry for him a little bit. He's kind of been boxed in by his own sort of success in the moment. I think basically Get Out and Us, I I actually prefer Us because it's just madder and he felt like he was capitalizing on his success. But I do feel like Get Out was kind of, I don't know, almost a exploitation movie that just caught on to the political climate. And then it almost... Almost did to a degree just drown out how well made and what a skillful filmmaker he is. And now basically I just think he's drowning in metaphors and symbols and his themes are kind of, I don't know, outweighing his stories. I always thought the person who was just great at having undercurrent themes in genre movies and still do is somebody like John Carpenter who was able to loop in like the likes of urban crime into... Um, Assault in Precinct 13 or Escape from New York or Cold War Paranoia is very much there in the thing and but I do feel like basically those were just you know side effects of what he was doing whereas with Jordan Peele's latest one I feel like he's very much trying to lean into metaphor land while at the same time there seems to be a very interesting storyline going on but you know that maybe you're not clever enough to get what the fuck he's doing whereas I'm going somewhere with this. Believe me, I'm going somewhere with this. I mean, whereas it's kind of like four really cool movies bouncing off each other and ultimately making no sense, if you get what I mean. So it's it's basically Signs meets uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind meets whatever, let's make a movie, movies, those kind of things. But the most interesting story is obviously the stuff with with the chimpanzee in the middle, right? Now... And uh, for anybody who hasn't seen Nope, I'd still recommend seeing it, but it's just, it's a bit of a mess. It's also available on streaming now. Is it available on streaming? I'm still glad I went to the cinema to see it. It was the first time I got to go uh, with my wife to the cinema in about a year. But anyway, this is where I'm going with something like this. So at the time when Parasite came out, it was sort of drowned out in the same sort of fuzz that um, the likes of Get Out was drowned in. But I basically think you can make a case they're similar beasts in that the themes work very well in Parasite, but they can kind of just be sort of incidental to the fact that this is just this mad, Hitchcockian delivered, but still just this mad story that you have no idea where you are most of the way through it until it explodes in a very inevitable fashion. I have to say the kind of politically tinged reviewing when it came out made me snub a little bit. I did really enjoy it, but I wasn't able to enjoy it completely as fully. This time around, I was just fucking blown away by it. I just think it's absolutely spectacular, and I would watch it again in a second. You go! (laughs) Thank you. Well, this was my first time watching Parasite. Obviously, it was uh, a Best Picture winning film. It won four Academy Awards. It also won Best Director, Best Original Screenplay. Best International Feature, it won the Palme d'Or, it won Best Foreign Language Film at the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes. I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> Just rubbish. Uh, no, okay, obviously it is uh, it is a great film. I was not looking forward to it uh, because I'm a racist, as we've covered before on other episodes. Yes. 
No, I wasn't looking forward to it. I guess I wasn't looking forward to it, honestly, because it was a foreign language film. Because I, in my head, I, I do still harbor that kind of like, that's work a little bit. It's not fun. Even though I watch everything with subtitles on anyway, so it doesn't make a lot of difference. But there's still that aspect of foreign language films where you have to 100% concentrate on everything that's going on. Yes. And I was kind of paying that off. But I was absolutely absorbed by every single second of this, and it flew by. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's a great j- piece of filmmaking, obviously. Yeah, uh, I thought, like particularly th- like this time around. So, some thoughts from just the off. Uh, immediately, you're engrossed in this family. You like them. They're funny. The performances are all good, and they're charismatic, and kind of all brilliant people in their own sort of way. That's one aspect of it. So then. The film has immediately, it immediately pulls off the trick of having you root for these people while they do something. And I want to make this absolutely clear that the Park family does not deserve by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm not, I'm not saying they're baddies, but do they not deserve it a little bit? No, they definitely, they don't deserve what happens to them. No way. Just a bit. and you know what? The father probably does smell. I'll say it. He probably does stink. Yeah, I mean, he looks like he smells of shochu or shoju or whatever the Korean one is. The old rice wine. Um, they are... Fair oh, enough. Sorry. They are theatrically um, unequal. But then I looked up afterwards. Uh, South Korea is um, the fifth most equal country on the planet. Yeah, so they seem to have this huge... Which I guess is a... a you know, it's a recurring argument or conversation in a lot of countries is that the middle class is disappearing and that there's a huge gulf in between rich and poor. But Korea, again, I've never been to Korea. I've been to, I lived in Japan for two years, but Korea is not a country that strikes me as having a huge disparity or economic divide. Again, I know nothing about it. I'm basing it, my knowledge off of the film Parasite. But mm. just in general, like, I mean, I guess it's not a country that would strike me as having a huge problem with that. Yeah, so this is kind of what I would get would be getting at when I'm saying the themes that occur. Because the thing is, I th- I actually do think the themes really really work. So because of this film, I looked up something because I don't want to trust any of the bollocks reviews. So I just wanted to see what Bang Joon Ho said, and he said, in a way, it's a movie about late stage capitalism. So I looked up what late stage capitalism is, and do you know what it is? Is it not where like the system starts to eat itself because it can't sustain itself? Well, just that kind of people end up in bizarrely self-contradictory positions on account of where the market drives things. Right. So, for example, <laughs> this bunch of people all sort of faking their positions in order to get into this house and live off these other people or the people living in the basement. So, like, in that... I think that as the theme really works. I think then basically just the inevitable collision and, you know, rage of the situation really, really works. Um, the way the whole thing just explodes near the end. But I think for the most part, it's just an unbelievable... It's it's orchestrated, like it's choreographed like a piece of music and dance, this film. How it's cut together, the music, the score is beautiful i've listened to it twice now since just like in work since watching the the just typing away it's a fucking masterpiece to listen to but the film itself just sort of bounces around every camera move i mean the the house and how wonderful it is helps with this but just every cut is 
just nearly musical how well it's cut together. It did, like I mentioned, uh, the, the big H already, but it, it strikes me as like, you know, the sort of thing Hitchcock might have ended up making had he been in an age where you could be more fucked up and perverted about things. Uh, because at the end of the day, while the themes work, this film is ultimately about holding you in the palm of its hand and kind of teasing you because it's so tense. There's like, there's only just, there's a part in the middle where they're all drinking in the living room where you just seem to be for the first time in a, in a, maybe a bit of platitude, a bit of tranquil place, a bit of a tranquil place with the film where you can kind of see where it maybe is going. And then all of a sudden, you know, the house lady who got fired comes back and it all just blows up again. It's just nuts. I listened to, I listened to Bong Joon-ho talking to Ryan Johnson. I think it was a DGA podcast from a couple of years ago. Mm. Director Bong, that's what he calls him, Director Bong. But it was like, it, <laughs> it was quite tough to listen to the podcast because he would answer a question in his native language and then they would, the, the, like the translator would, would say what he was saying in English. So it would just be like this really, really long experience where they could have cut half of it. Just don't, just give us his, the interpreter's answers. We don't even need to hear him speaking Korean. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but he didn't really talk that much about uh, Parasite. He did mention that he watched Psycho when he was nine years old, and that was like a huge influence on him in general. So obviously he was a huge fan. He's been a huge fan of Hitchcock his entire life. The one thing they did talk about, they talked a lot about the storyboarding for Parasite. The entire mm. film has, like, the, the actual final film is really similar to the storyboards that they designed. And the, the, um, the set that they used was just a ground floor. And the second floor is all CG. And they've actually maintained it. I think the uh, Korean tourist board, the Seoul tourist board, is, it has maintained that as, like, a tourist attraction. And they also have a ton of they have a ton of problems with tourists going to the like slum neighborhoods where it was filmed and doing things, you know, like people <laughs> going to the Bronx and filming themselves going up and dancing down those Joker steps, that type I, of thing. How many of uh, Bong Joon Ho's films have you seen by now? We were we did Snowpiercer for we the talked pod to, yeah we talked we watched Snowpiercer for and I also watched Memories of Murder and that's mm. it. He's also made Barking Dogs Never Bite, which was his first film which is about a guy trying to kill his neighbor's dogs i think and then the host which is a creature i've film. seen that yeah mother which seems like it sounds a bit like psycho ish to me and then okja which was his big seen Netflix that too. thing yeah i wasn't a fan of okja at all the host is is pretty good and um, but out of his filmography what stands out as particularly next level is this and memories of murder i think memories of murder is an absolute masterpiece i really um, didn't care for memories of murder i remember you saying that now yeah i th- i just th- i i thought there was it reminded me of zodiac but maybe i maybe because i saw it out of order because i didn't watch memories of murder when it came out i watched it like last year so I would. I was saying they're going like, yeah. I'd rather watch Zodiac. I'd rather watch Prisoners. I'd rather watch something else. And also, I think the other thing that's maybe hurt Memories of Murder is that the case was solved in the last year or two. So, yeah. I think it was probably more interesting when it was an unsolved murder. Uh, that wouldn't bother me. I just think it's a really well-made film. I just like I always. It is a well-made film, but like for some reason, I don't know. It does. It just didn't capture my attention. There was there was something of. I find the character. I remember something uh, finding like finding the sort of idiot character quite annoying. The one who mm. loses the leg. Yeah, yeah. There was a bit too much slapstick, and also because I don't really understand the 
military regime that they were living under in the 80s time period i guess like the my disconnect with that period of history that's on me i should probably read more so you you've never you haven't seen the host at all that is um there's hints of what the host kind of gets at in parasite i suppose it's like i mean basically the monster is just horrific american english on the uh on the peninsula uh, which I never really get the animosity towards because they did save them from, you know, the, the communists, but whatever. Um, I suppose they probably have a different opinion on that. <laughs> I'm just stating, stating it as I know it. Um, I, there is kind of a, you know, something of that being hinted at in Parasite. But mostly, I just think, like I said, I do think the the themes explode nicely at the end. But I just think they're a means to an end. They're a great way to have the film just explode near the end and you know what the, the an interesting thing is uh, about the near the end of parasite right the the themes all that most people would read into the film almost kind of go back on themselves just a tiny bit because the boy wakes up laughing about how bizarre the whole fucking situation is and then he kind of says to himself i'm gonna work uh, as hard as i can and buy the house and get to meet my father again which is nearly like it's such a conservative kind of uh, pull up your bootstraps <laughs> kind of attitude. It's almost out of the Jordan B. Peterson playbook, like. But I think weren't they just going for the spoilers for the twenty fifth hour? But aren't they just going for the twenty fifth hour fake out ending though? I don't think so. I don't if, think so. I don't think I never thought take, that that was real. Him, like, I think that that that. Oh, he, what do you mean? You're never. You're not supposed to believe that. But are you, are you supposed to believe that he will make that money? It would take. Something like five hundred years. No, no, no. Years. I don't necessarily I think you're. I, I don't think you're supposed to think that. Right. I think you're supposed to think that he's going to try, rather than just trying to be, rather than just being a parasite. Who is the real parasite? That's my question. Well, yes, I know. But it, once again, I'll say: is it the Park, is it the the Park family, family? Do not do does do not deserve this to happen to them. Is it the they family don't. who moves in and fakes their jobs and tries to? Uh, live off of the other family and then ultimately one of the guys stabs the other one? Or is it the businessman in his suit and tie? Yeah, it's the it's the Kims, isn't it? No, yeah, you're right. It was the first one. It was the first one. <laughs> like, I mean, but like, you know, the thing is they're immediately very likable characters, which is the, you know, the trick that the film is pulling off very, very successfully. But I think objectively, I don't think you could possibly say that the Parks deserve what happens to them. That was, if I still, and this is not a criticism of the film, but I will say this, that energy of that first half before the revelation of the bunker, basically, underneath yes. the, the park's house, the energy of that first half of the film, I want to live in that film. Like, I would have happily have watched an entire film of that with there's no, yeah. no comeuppance, no one has to pay for their crimes. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, just, I agree with because, you. Because, yeah. like... Both of these, both of the films that we watched this week had that kind of reveal where it was revealed like, ah, they're, they're scheming. And I was 100% on board both times. I was like, ah, oh, thank God. Well, apparently there is um, uh, a miniseries in development to show you kind of life in the house as it continued when they were just successfully scheming yeah, them all at the and, same time. And, and who is that being developed by? Um, I can't remember at this point. I know there's some well, it's someone famous who's actor attached. Yeah, it's got it's got it's going to have Mark Ruffalo in it, but it's being developed by uh, none other than Adam McKay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, but I also, wish... also also Bong as well. To be fair, he's involved. 
Ah, God. (laughs) Wouldn't you just, like, because the thing is, I don't think Parasite is preachy. Oh, I don't. Well, it's going to be the HBO series. Well, exactly. Like, like Adam McKay will will preachy the fuck out of it with all, with yeah. all his nonsense. But I, do, like I said, I I basically think the thematics are a means to an end with this one. I actually, th- I you know what? I think the the same to be true with Snowpiercer. I think you kind of need the themes, but ultimately, it's a film about a cool idea of a class based train going around the world in a post apocalypse. I was know? looking. At, I was looking at that today. Snowpiercer, the TV series, is going into its fourth season next Last year. Last season as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but how the hell do you get four seasons out of people on a train? I think I asked this question when we reviewed Snowpiercer. But like, how the hell do you get that many hours just of guys on a train? I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a film called uh, Runaway Train, directed by John Frankenheimer. I could watch that for probably a, at least 10 hours. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> at a certain point, you probably Boyd have to stop the train, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They couldn't run away forever. Um, Parasite yeah. is based on a couple of things. It's, it was a play that Bong originally wrote in 2013 that was repurposed, but it's based on a 1960 Korean film. Uh, which is revered as a classic called The Housemaid, which is part of a trilogy of films where basically like a young sort of temptress housemaid comes and uh, joins a family and causes all kinds of havoc with her shenanigans. But it's also based on the true story of Christine and Léa Papin, who were uh, yeah, French housemates in the 1930s. And they were basically being tortured by the lady that they worked for because she was mentally ill. So they stabbed her and her daughter to death and it caused huge like shockwaves in the, the French intelligentsia. And there's a ton of things based on that. There's a ton of like books and plays and films based on that, on that story. Where do you think Bong would stand with my statement that the um, parks do not deserve this? Uh, I don't, I mean... Do you think I'm reading the film right? Yeah, I mean, they're not bad people, sure. They're not bad. You, it's hard to judge them as bad people. But equally, they're kind. They're posh, rich, and annoying at the same time. That doesn't mean they should be tortured. But it's not like things don't really go haywire until the very end. Like you say, they don't deserve this. There's not really much bad happening to them throughout the film, is there? I mean, they're being taken Until advantage of. Until one of them gets stabbed. Yeah, taken advantage of. But they're not like being, they're not being drained of all their resources. They're, the, the services that they're being given are not bad. Yeah, no, 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 that's true. That's true. But I mean, they, like the father pro- doesn't really deserve to be murdered, I suppose. But I mean, it's a vengeance killing he wasn't, also. Was, was, he, was he murdered? Well, yeah, that's why, they, um, that's why the, dad is, uh, that's, the dad is wanted for murder at the end of the film. Oh, I thought it was just uh To be attempted. fair, if... If I was going to murderize any member of the family, it would be the dad. What What does the dad do? I thought he was an actor or something, but then at the end, he looks sort of Zuckerberg-y. No, he's like a, a businessman or something. Is like that what that. he is? He's like a yeah, Korean yeah, yeah. businessman. We do see him in his office playing around with a bunch of stuff, and it does look like he's a bit of a like Bill Gates type. There is actually that, um, that speech that... Uh, Mr. Kim gives to his son in the gymnasium that would actually kind of suggest that I'm not taking the theme seriously enough where he's like, just never plan because then you'll never be disappointed. Which is basically, I thought uh, you're you're a big uh, fan of a podcast, a little known podcast that needs a shout out, Matt and Shane's Secret Podcast, where 
A few weeks ago, I remember Matt McCusker made an observation where he said, you know what I hate when they talk about like uh, like national natural disasters or pa- the pandemic, for example, and people make the point that, uh, well, I mean, you know, the, the, you know who this is really going to affect is the poor. And McCusker goes, yeah, because that's what being poor is. That's literally it. Everything that sort of happens to the world, you can either, you have either, either have money to protect yourself from it or you don't. And the worse the disaster, the more money you're going to need. But ultimately, that's what it is. And I thought that like that sort of syncs up to Mr. Kim's sort of speech. It's just like that's kind of what poverty is. It's just like you can't be prepared for things. You can't be prepared for the worst. You're not protected by the flo- from the flood, you know? Which I think, well, like, I mean, there's obvious, you know, metaphorical connotations in the positioning of their house. You know, it's literally a gutter, pretty much. People piss up against it every night. I thought um, it was quite nice, actually. You thought that was nice? That was a nice place yeah. to live? Yeah, they got their own, they got their own rooms. You got a little toilet up on it. You stand up on the bit and go on the toilet. Got Wi-Fi? Yeah, they've got, they've got better Wi-Fi than I've got right now, probably. Similar sort of setup. Yeah. Like, uh, you do think that the parks deserve it. That's your official, uh, that's where you're officially I won't say that they. I won't say that they definitely deserve it, but I don't feel bad for them. I feel bad for the guy getting murdered, and that's it, really. Would you, um, do you think I'm on point with saying that, you know, the theme is a means to an end, and that it's probably just more about the, uh, the Hitchcockian cat and mouse chase, or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like uh, that reveal of when it's revealed that there's these this guy living in the uh, sort of panic room bunker type area underneath the house. That reveal is just like is a twisty thing that just seems typical of South Korean cinema. Like, yes, that's so the kind of thing I'm accustomed to seeing from Bong Joon Ho and Park Park Chan Wook. Yes, this you know, like old boy has those type of twisty reveals. The Handmaiden, we saw similar kind of things. It's just kind of taken for granted that that's like a big aspect. That something mad is going to happen. Yeah, something mad, which then oftentimes becomes like ultra violent or very sexualized or both in a perverted way, usually. Hmm. So it's not really surprising. It's kind of that's where it would have been like my film that I wanted to see would have been a worse film. But equally, I wouldn't have had to have dealt with the consequences of their actions. <laughs> I just wanted a film where they they <laughs> ride off into the sunset like it's Entourage or something. Yeah, th- you know what? Like when the when the the housekeeper who's been fired when she arrives in the middle of the night and it's raining, it, like and I knew what, where the movie was going. But when I saw it first and when I watched it again two nights ago, that moment is spooky. Because you're just like, what is up? I thought she was just a nothing character. You do think she's a nothing character. Yeah. You do, you think, oh, that's the last we've seen of her. And you're like, what? She's actually a person and she's back? This is making me nervous. I wanted to, uh, yeah. I, again, I don't feel bad for her having bits of peach thrown on her. I do feel bad for her <laughs> ultimately dying. That is or I have order. Oh, yeah. She dies horribly. And then she like, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it looks very painful, that. I did. I didn't like her giving her husband milk. That was very disturbing. He looked. I thought he was like a big baby at first. <laughs> she was just feeding him, and he's going nom 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 nom. He does seem kind of mentally impaired. And I, one thing I would also say is like, so. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things. It's just like if you like, even like you could say about Nope or, or as well. It's just 
you just need to think about their situation a tiny bit longer and you're you're like that was the most logical thing to do to to hide in the bottom of the house for forever what yeah but anyway i mean it, hey, it they feeds, had, had nowhere else to go it feeds in well to the title of the film i suppose it's funny as well that when it shows um her and her husband like uh, being parasites off the parks they're being much more classy and they're listening to jazz and the other guys are just getting smashed in the living room it's funny i respect their choices i think they made the right uh, the right choice Hell yeah. You you have anything interesting to say about any cast member? <laughs> no. But this is the thing. Like all these cast uh all the cast members in both films work entirely in uh South Korean cinema. They haven't worked overseas at all. Uh so they probably have some interesting anecdotes in the things that they've done in Korea. I didn't come across any of them. But um yeah, I mean, all, I think what was really strong about the uh, cast members, like especially the uh, Kim family, mm-hmm. is despite me not speaking the same language as them, you're able to get a sense of their character very strongly, just from like facial expressions, mannerisms, beyond just reading the translation of what they were saying. Yeah, like their characters are so strong, so clearly defined that it overcomes any language gap which I think is really unusual for a foreign language film for me. Yeah, I, when, I mean, the characters are really well realised, and I would agree with you, particularly with the Kim family. One thing I would say about um, Cho Yo Jung, um, the mother of the Park family, is um, she's, a, she's, a, she's a, a bit of a looker, that lady. What's her name? Uh, Cho Yo Jung. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or uh, Cho Young Yo is uh, how it's pronounced, apparently. But yeah, she's a good-looking lady. I enjoyed the uh, odd mar- marriage person sex scene. I was able to relate to that slightly. Um, yeah, yeah. It was good. On the sofa. Yeah, yeah. She's a good-looking lady. Okay. Well, I actually judge people by the content of their character, but okay then. Fair enough. Wish. Okay, so you want to he- do the synopsis, Parasite? Yeah, let's go. Let's hear it. All right, cool. So, right. The first people we meet are the Kims. Uh, not to be confused with those Kims from Korea, but quite possibly the target audience uh, of the those Korean Kims because they're like fucking dirt poor, you know. Uh, so they're a family of four. Uh, so father, Mister Kim, uh, so, uh, son is Ki Woo, daughter Ki Jung, um, must be a thing, and uh, mother Chung Suk doesn't take the uh, doesn't take the the name. Maybe it's not. A, we're learning all sorts of things about Korean families. So anyway, they're living in a basement with a view of an alleyway. Um, and they chase Wi-Fi around like sort of, you know, a homeless guy following quarters in the middle of a freeway and fold pizza boxes for cash. Um, after like an introduction by a student friend of Ki Woo, they one by one con their way into the household staff of the wealthy Park family. Ki Woo taking over from his friend as their teenage daughter's English tutor, Ki Jung as their sons are therapist, uh, and later, by way of sabotage, Mr. Kim and uh, Chung Suk as a housekeeper, and they exploit her allergy to peaches, which is probably an allergy that you'll only ever see in a Korean movie, to make it <laughs> seem that uh, Gook Moon Gwang, which is not a name for an Asian person I made up, uh, the current housekeeper, they make it seem like she has TB, um, and that's victory, and they they get to take over by that. It's extremely fun to watch them do it. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. It is. Uh, I think the first half of the film, especially, carries just this amazing energy, and like I kind of wanted, I wanted to stay with that throughout the whole thing. 
Yeah, it would be fun to see a little bit more of them just fucking around. Like, there's actually, there's a good premise for, you know, probably about six seasons of an American sitcom, 24 episodes per season of this kind of thing, isn't there? Just, you know, little hijinks where they almost get caught. That sounds a bit like uh, The Riches with Eddie Izzard and Minnie Driver. Is that a real thing? It is. I've never even heard of that. Is it? It's. It sounds terrible. I watched one episode. Fair play. Yeah. Uh, is uh, is they any good in it? <laughs> They're amazing. Fucking great. Anyway, right. So when the Parks go off for a camping trip for their their son's um, birthday, the Kims take advantage of the situation by lounging about their expensive house and drinking their booze. Uh, when then in the middle of the night um, uh, and in the pissing rain, housekeeper Gook. Uh, which is her name, and I didn't make it up, returns saying she needs to get something from the basement that she left there. I just, uh, like, as I've, you know, I might have mentioned it, but just as moments in films go, like, I don't know, it's just unsettling because she's immediately a character you never expect to see again. I've seen this film three times, and still, when she shows up at the door, you're like, what? Yeah, She's got, like, full League of Gentlemen face and energy. Oh, totally. In the in the doorbell screen thing. Yeah. Local shop. Yeah, she does. She looks like yeah. Tubbs. Anyway, Chong, um, Chong lets her in, and uh, the film fucking does a backflip as we discover that she had her husband hiding out in a bomb shelter beneath the house for three years. She, Gook, uh, she sees the other Kims um, and figures out that they've been scheming, and a fight ensues, which gets interrupted by the parks calling and saying they're coming home. And then um, the fight finishes basically with Gook's husband tied up in the basement and Gook dead of head trauma, trauma presumably. Actually, a very kind of disturbing bit as she's slowly dying and her husband is tied up. And she's just, she's concussed or something and she's bleeding all over the place. And yeah, it's she seems very self. She seems very self-aware in that moment. She's like, I have a concussion. Yeah. And then she dies. Yeah, but she doesn't exactly concussion. say, I, I have a dead, you know? I would call her self-aware if she said, I'm definitely dying from this. <laughs> I'm dying from this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, th- then over the course of the next night, her husband smashes his nose off his face doing Morse code, uh, which is a mad little state of affairs. Anyway, Gook dies of a head trauma, and then all the Kims bar Chong hide underneath sofas as the parks have uh, sex on the sofas. Hot, hot pajamas sex, which I thoroughly approve of. I actually did, I, I gotta admit, probably, like, yeah, my pants got a little tight during that scene. I just thought that was kind of hot. I think that's a sad state of affairs, but go ahead. Okay, all right, f- fair enough. Maybe I'll have to get more adventurous, read a sex book. <laughs> uh, I don't have pajamas. I sleep in the nudie, so, I mean, sure. that's already more I'm adventurous. Podcast in it. It's at um, this time that when they're on the couch that they first make a kind of a comment. Well, the kid already made one earlier in the film, but they make a comment about Mr. Kim's smell that seems to sort of light a fuse under his arse a little bit. This is when something starts. And basically, once the parks are asleep, then the Kims escape and rather poetically descend to their flooded apartment to salvage a few heirlooms before having to sleep in a gymnasium beside all the others disenfranchised by the flood. And uh, just you could like there's you know I mean you can practically imagine Kanye West just telling Mike Myers that the par- <laughs> the parks do not care about the Kims. It's uh, true. Yeah, and then the next day, Chong is called in to organize an impromptu birthday party for the park kid, for which Mr. Kim is called in to drive. 
Miss um, Park around uh, shopping like and shit, and uh, the other Kims um, to basically keep their Park counterparts company. Um, and as Mr. Kim begins to reach his limits, Gook's husband escapes from the basement, uh, smashes Ki Woo's head open, and proceeds to the garden where the party is going on. He stabs Ki Jung, which causes uh, the Park boy to have a seizure. And as Mr. Kim tends to his dying daughter, um, Chong stabs Gook's husband with a barbecue skewer. Um, and Mr. Kim, seeing Mr. Park react to uh, Mr. Gook's smell, <laughs> Jesus, these names, uh, he just loses it and stabs him and flees. Um, I, 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 I have said that I don't think the Parks deserve what happens to them. But if anybody deserves it, it's Mr. Park. So, I mean, there's a little bit yes. of justice in that, I would say. Um, yeah, so then Mr. Kim flees. And then uh, I had thought, actually, the first time I watched this, certainly, and almost again, that Ki-Woo is dead. Uh, but then Ki-Woo wakes up a few weeks later. And um, by watching the house, which is now vacated by the Parks, he learns his father is living in the bunker now. Um, and Ki-Woo decides that he'll make enough money to one day buy the house and be reunited with his father. And I suppose there is a bit of a sort of a, when I think about it, not a lot, I don't think when people refer to the ending of Inception as a kind of a could go either way thing, I don't actually think it is. I think that's Christopher Nolan fucking with you. But I think there is um, sort of actually a nearly a test of your worldview on this because he's either being an absolute fantasist um, because there's no way to cross between the classes, or he's, you know, broken out of being a parasite and being, you know, a little bit more aspirational. What do you think? I think the only realistic reading of it is that he's never going to successfully achieve it. We just have to assume that his dad is stuck there underneath that house for all eternity. Shit. Jesus, Mr. Bubbly Popcorn over here, huh? <laughs> you don't think he could one day buy the house? I haven't seen the guy's bootstraps yet, so it's hard to say. Anyway, awesome movie. Uh, of the two uh, this week, which one did you prefer? To be honest, I think I might prefer The Handmaiden. I think I need more time to digest these, but like, I think I might prefer The Handmaiden, which I did not expect at all. Okay, I mean, let's talk Handmaiden. Why do you prefer well, The Handmaiden? First of all, I think it's important to note which version did you end up watching because there's a 144-minute theatrical cut and then there's the 168-minute extended version. Uh, the theatrical. I watched I read the extended the version. Oh, okay. Mm. Interesting. Do you know the difference between the two? So uh, looking at the movie censorship.com, you can see a scene-by-scene analysis of the differences. Uh, a lot of the things are just extended scenes like an extra three seconds in the extended version, things like that, just like holding shots. There's also a few things where there's like a full-on 30-second, one-minute scenes that are inserted. Uh, it'll be interesting if we do talk a little bit about plot to see where some of the differences are. I'm guessing that the version I watched was maybe more sexually explicit, potentially. Please tell me that they don't show anybody being interfered, interfered with by an octopus. No, I did oh, not see that. God. I, I did think that was going to occur. Me too. When uh, they got down to the I basement, I was like, oh no, don't go full Korean. Don't go full Korean. Oy. I don't think, like, I, there's nothing that I would particularly want to cut from the version that I saw. It is weird to make that decision. I, 
from what I've heard, the theatrical version runs more smoothly and is maybe the preferred option. But like, I really enjoyed the extended version, and obviously, I'm saying I liked it more than Parasite, so it's quite a strong statement. I've seen almost every. I think almost everything Park Chan Wook has done. I have seen. I have uh, not. I think I've only seen Old Boy. Okay. Well, I, no, I've seen the Vengeance trilogy. I've seen Joint Security Area, and I've seen Stoker. And now I've seen this. Apart from Lady Vengeance in the Vengeance trilogy, which I'm not a big fan of, um, I think everything that I've seen of him, I've I've thought was excellent. Um, really engaging, strange. Um, like both of these guys, I think are heavily influenced by Hitchcock in a big way. Um, this in particular, like I, I, The Handmaiden, I would imagine, is very much influenced by the likes of Rebecca, for example. Um, but also. It's almost like, you know, the twisted Korean version of a Merchant Ivory production. Well, I mean, it is based on a, on a British novel, Fingersmith. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, by Welsh writer Sarah Waters. They just adapted it to Korea under Japanese colonial rule from Victorian Britain. And is it as, like, sex-obsessed? I th- assume so. I don't know if it's that sexy of a novel, but it's, it's got the same, like, three-part structure which is sort of prestige of like, ah, that's not what's really happening. The old double, yeah. double cross. So what, will we run through a quick plot synopsis? Because it's, it could be confusing otherwise. The film is split into three parts, each from the perspective of a different character. And this all takes place in Jap- Japanese-occupied Korea. Part one is from the perspective of the titular handmaiden Nam Suk-hee. She goes to work for a Japanese heiress called Lady Hideko, an orphan who lives in a huge estate with her evil uncle Kazuki. Hideko seems to be very depressed and is dealing with the death of her aunt who hung herself from a cherry tree in the garden when Hideko was a child. Lady Hideko is being courted by Count Fujiwara, a young man who's helping Kazuki with his main passion, books. When Hideko introduces Count Fujiwara to Suki, we find out that both the Count and the Handmaiden are actually Oliver Twist-style grifters, and he has recruited her to make Lady Hideko fall in love with him, all with the aim of stealing her fortune and dumping her in a Japanese loony bin. As the plan plays out, it becomes clear that Suki has feelings for Hideko and is resistant to Fujiwara's plan. However, by the time they look to Japan... How do you figure that Japan, they have feelings for each other? Well, I just read into that, you know? I, I, I read into the scissoring. Some nice rumpity pumpity going on with some Just ni- a bit. male gaze. More male gaze than Brokeback Mountain, if you ask me. So as the plan plays out, it becomes clear that Suki has feelings for Hideko and is resistant to Fujiwara's plan. However, by the time they elope to Japan, having run away from the evil uncle Kazuki, Suki agrees to go along with the original plan to ditch the lady at the insane asylum. However, in a shocking twist, when they reach the asylum, the doctors take Suki into their custody assuming that she is in fact Lady Hideko. And here the audience learns that Lady Hideko engineered the whole thing with Count Fujiwara to escape the clutches of her uncle. Part two is from Lady Hideko's perspective. In flashbacks, we see how she was essentially tortured from a young age by her uncle and his wife. They were physically abusive to her and her aunt, eventually leading to her aunt's suicide. Hideko is forced to read pornographic books for her uncle and later to a room full of eyes wide shut creeps. When she's very bad, she's threatened with the basement, which is where Uncle Kazuki keeps his octopus, something we thankfully don't see much of. However, in part two, we also see Lady Hideko fall in love with Suki. 
The director goes to great lengths with depicting explicit lesbian sexual acts just to reinforce how much they love each other. Did your pants get tight? Uh, no, I just admired the physical beauty and I respected the, I respected the love between the two characters. Probably not enough choking and hitting for you, right? I was waiting for the octopus. That's it. Hideko and Suki concoct a plan together to elope. We see them destroying all of Uncle Kazuki's pornographic books before they depart for Japan with Fujiwara. Cue part three. Part three is mainly from the perspective of Fujiwara. Suki is in the asylum. Lady Hideko is with Count Fujiwara, who is delighted at having successfully got hold of her inheritance. There's a fire in the asylum. Suki is ushered out of the building to safety by her Fagin-style family of con artists who have come to rescue her. At the same time, Lady Hideko seduces Count Fujiwara and spits wine laced with opium into his mouth. When he falls unconscious, she runs off with the cash, leaving him to face the consequences of their collective actions. Count Fujiwara is arrested and returned to Uncle Kazuki, who leads him down to the basement. As Kazuki cuts off Fujiwara's fingers and asks him to talk about his sexual experiences with his niece, Fujiwara smokes multiple cigarettes laced with mercury, which ultimately kill both Fujiwara and Kazuki, maybe even the octopus. In the end, Suki and Hideko sail off into the sunset with Hideko posing as Fujiwara to evade the authorities before the two ladies get out a bunch of metal balls shown earlier in the film and set about whacking them up each other's fannies the end. <laughs> I mean, it's such an excellent film and then such a cartoonishly pornographic ending. I think it was just building to that, the whole thing. That's what he wanted to say. Okay. Here's one thing. I'm not saying this is a criticism I would give myself personally, but it's one I would get, and I understand people have made it of the film. I haven't read anything specific, but I remember hearing it at the time. And, right, so, you know, people talk about the uh, this idea of the male gaze and the female gaze, right? And one thing that you can be certain of when you're watching The Handmaiden with all the lesbian scenes and the way they're shot is you're like, there's no way this was directed by a woman. I don't know. I thought it was. I personally thought it was very tasteful. <laughs> I'm not saying it wasn't very tasteful, and I'm not saying it wasn't very tasty. I'm saying it was very sexy. I'm not saying I. See, I didn't, I didn't fu- have any problem with that. I thought that. I, was... I didn't have a problem with it either. All I'm saying is that I would get that criticism leveled at this film. Right? There's a film that's very. I similar. think those people are just close-minded, in my opinion. Um, have you ever seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire? No. So that's like a, a big gay movie of uh, a, f- a few years ago with lesbians again. Lesbians. I, I do remember that, yes. Lesb- lesbian period piece. Uh, so it's a bit set in a period, not about uh, menstruation. Um, I'm sure they menstruate at some point, but uh, it's not featured in the film. I would say that's particularly less male gazy than this. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've seen enough... Per- <laughs> To, to just make an admission, I've seen enough lesbian pornography to be able to recognize uh, it when it's being uh, shoveled at me. And I do think that that would be a fair criticism of this film. I think it's a uh, fair leery. Would you say, would you agree with that? Uh, I like female gays. I think they're good. Have you ever seen a male gay movie that's this sexy? Uh, n- no. <laughs> Like, no gay was, movie Was there goes any 69ing in Brokeback Mountain? I don't think n- so. No, it was all just wrestly aggressive sex. Well, maybe Which is maybe sexy in its own right. I don't know. I'm not gay. Well. It's on record now. The night is still young. <laughs> uh, yeah. The score yeah, was fantastic I, I as well. I, I think what? that's fine. I think, I think you're making a good point. I don't know. 
could you make this film with two men? Would would that be? I mean, in large parts of the world, they would probably not be on board with it. But like, would you show them sixty nining if it was two guys? Let me put it like this: This is the sort of film that my twelve-year-old friends and I back in the day when I was twelve. I don't have any twelve-year-old friends now. Uh, my twelve-year-old friends and I would have stayed up late to watch uh, this on Friday oh, night. Sure, absolutely. This would be a Channel 4 classic in the UK. This would have... I would have seriously, yeah, stiffened some socks over this one. This is the kind of thing when I was a kid, yeah, like I remember staying up late at night and then you had to listen to a film critic like Mark Cousins going like, this is a beautiful <laughs> film and yes. it's got ladies 69ing in it as well which is not to my taste but <laughs> you might like it it's all that like that's that's my memories of being a teenager. i love your mark cousins impression it, I, I, it gets me every time <laughs> that's that all that all that means is that i stayed up late at night and watched things on like bbc2 of mark cousins introducing foreign films I must have watched so many things like The Handmaiden when Lovely I was boobies. too young. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there's plenty of lads out in this film as well now. Fair play to them. Um, well, four lads. Yeah. Oh, no, wait, five. There's a lad in the opening oh, scene. Oh, yeah. yeah. Beating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the, uh, and, right. <laughs> like, it is kind of so far, so Merchant Ivory with breasts up until... They make her have sex with the puppet, or at least uh, simulate sex with the giant puppet, and then you're like, "Oh, we're in Korea for sure." This is part two of the film is very disturbing. The uncle, the uncle is up there with uh, highest level evil baddie, like not usually shown in film. I would say, at least yeah. not in Western cinema, not to this degree. Maybe that's more typical in Asia of like having a character that's that full on perverted and. I mean, going back to, I, I think the only other film of Park Chan-wook's I've seen is Old Boy, and that it equally has some pretty, yeah, that's pretty messed up incest uh, and other like uh, things going on. So it's not that surprising, but I mean, it is like it's insane to have such a such like a full on evil evil character in ways that you hadn't really thought about, <laughs> like going, oh right, oh yeah, I guess you could do this <laughs> if you if you were that fucked up. Yeah, it's not good. No, no, it's not. And it doesn't do anything for unfortunate, like, stereotypes about weird kinky Asian <laughs> stuff. They, were, they wanted to make sure to go like, hey, this guy's Japanese or thinks he's Japanese. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe. <laughs> he's not Korean. Let's make that very clear. Yeah, this he's, is like the, this, this is the Victorian version of those um, vending machines with dirty knickers in them. <laughs> Because at the end, when he's torturing uh, Count Fujiwara, he's he's asking him to go like, "Go on, tell me what was it like?" Yeah, 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 when yeah. You had sex with my niece. Yeah, yeah. It's, was she, uh, was she a gore? Yeah, it's it's up there. It's uh, thankfully he's toxic, gassed to death. So yeah, I would probably land on the other side of the fence, but I still love both of these films. Uh, I I obviously pushed for this one. I think I might have put it up for a toss at one point before. Glad to have seen it. Uh, I would watch it again. I think, um, like, apart from the things I mentioned, I think it's a really engaging story. Like, it grabs you um, start to finish. I was even, like, I, I was feeling quite tired when I watched this last night. And um, then near the, I can't, I think it's near the end of the, um, yeah, at the end of part one, um, 
when she gets committed to the asylum instead i was like despite my tiredness i was like okay no i'm still i'm staying up for this and at this point there's probably like an hour and 40 minutes left in it but like i was like no it really, really grabbed me in um i thought the score was really beautiful in a way that you don't often see in films from the orient uh, it was like it was almost it almost felt like a john williams score in parts it was really beautiful and um, particularly when they eloped together i thought yeah. the scene also the scene where she destroys all the pornography is uh, just excellent that i found that really moving to be honest i almost cried watching that so the love story did grab me <laughs> not just not just for all the porno um just not all for not just for the porno leather stuff uh, i i thought the love story did grab me and uh, i cried as well when um Obviously, when um, they shoved the beads up one another at the end, I thought that was really <laughs> that's moving. Very <laughs> that's very that's moving. a bizarre ending for the film. It's that fucking is, mental. Is, that's out there. That's out there. I should point out that they did actually make a, a BBC TV uh, serialized uh, miniseries of Fingersmith of the novel, an adaptation starring Sally Hawkins and Imelda Staunton. Oh, yeah. This the seems like the sort Mike, of thing. Mike Lee classics. It's... Uh, Seems to be reasonably highly rated, so maybe just watch that. But don't, I, actually, I you know, The Handmaiden is great. And Park Chan Wook. He's got a new film out this year, I think. It was at Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, it's actually, called Decision to Leave. It's a romantic uh, mystery film. And apparently think, it's, it's, it's quite good. Yeah, he won. I've heard it's quite good. He won the Best Director Award at Cannes. This year? Yeah. It was, the film was nominated for the Palme d'Or. That was released theatrically in South Korea in June. I wonder when we'll get it. Another film that uh, did all right at the Cannes Film Festival this year, uh, 3,000 Years of Longing. Ah, funny you should mention that. I, <laughs> once again, yeah, I should point out to uh, long-time listeners, I'm back in Croatia again. I'm in Split. And if you've listened to any previous episodes when I was in Croatia, I ran into problems going to the cinema. Again, I've looked at my local, like, big cinema, the same company that I had problems with in uh, Rijeka, but I tried, I looked at buying tickets for 3,000 Years of Longing, and online, you can't buy an individual ticket. You can only buy two tickets together. But it is out there. It's out, but you have to buy two tickets. So maybe I have to buy two tickets and get a homeless guy to go with me. Or can you not just go to the cinema and buy them there? Like a regular I ge- person? I guess. No, no. Why was why is that regular? Why is it regular <laughs> to buy them online beforehand? That's that's regular. true. That that is that is way more regular. Like I don't a, know what, I, what I meant to say. Would, like like a troglodyte is what I meant to say. Yeah. I suppose. No, but how mad is that? They they're like they're just they're looking at this as a thing and going like, why would anyone want to go just alone? Like that's Maybe. not. We could just oh, remove yeah, that. Yeah, I do remember you had issues with this before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They're like, well, we we probably don't need to include that function because no one will ever use it. <laughs> Maybe they have a low birth rate. I assume so. I don't know what's happening in the Croatian cinema rooms, but I'm going to find out. Yeah. I mean, for a second there, I thought you were going to say it wasn't out in Croatia. And I was about, about to get quite mad because... Uh, no, I'm, it is out. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to squeeze it in way past my bedtime tonight. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, <laughs> and like that's fine. I'm going to have I'm going to have to have a caffeinated uh, uh, fizzy beverage. Uh, if is this I'm is this the only chance you have to see it? Kind of, yeah. Because I got okay, I, okay. I've got family duties and a busy week next week, and yeah, yeah, fair pretty play, much is. Uh, so I'm do, I'm doing it for the kids. So if you can't just take a homeless man to the goddamn cinema, I then, will. 
<laughs> I will. I'll pay for two seats and I'll just put my feet up. Strikes me that Croatian homeless guys will be more homeless than regular ones. We'll see. It depends. We'll see. Indeed, but before we even need to talk about, before we even get to talk about next week's new film, I suppose we've got to talk about the week after that's old film with a bit of a toss. So uh, what do you bring it to the table this week? Well, for two weeks' time, my choice is one. I think we've talked about this because I know you've 100% seen it. It's just something I haven't got around to yet, and that's Michael Mann's Thief. Hell yeah. Great movie. We'd be happy to watch again. Um, We'd almost be happier, but not quite. Uh, as to watch my uh, toss pick, I'm really going to for myself this week. I want to watch uh, David Lynch's 1999 film, uh, The Straight Story, which is probably the straightest story he ever uh, told in his entire filmography. Um, yeah, but uh, I have I'm, seen that. I've seen it maybe twice. I think I saw it in the cinema. Oh yeah, did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I watched like that. It came out in 99, 2000. That was like my first year of university, and I watched. Like everything, I had a cinema just uh, not that far away, and it cost almost nothing with a student discount. So I remember watching everything. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the straight story. Sure, who doesn't? I'm just look, that? like I'm even looking at the poster now, and I know it's going to make me cry. Just like oh, so satisfactory. A man on a lawnmower. Yeah. Oh god damn! Nothing I'm going to cry. Poignant. All right, cool. So, what are my options? Well, I've got a Croatian coin this time, so your options are five because it's a five kuna or a bear. All right, well, I suppose I suppose as tribute to all my friends in Sieges, I'm going to have to pick the bear. Fair play. Well, congratulations, because the bear is the winner. Oh, hell yeah. Excellent. Looking forward to it. I might watch Thief anyway. It's really good. What could I have won? Oh, no, wait. You, uh, could, you get to hear what you could, you could have won. What could you have won? Uh, well... Considering Thief is a famous movie about career criminals, I was gonna, uh, I was gonna come right back at you with one. Uh, Jean Pierre Melville's uh, 1956 French gangster film, Bob Le Flambeau. Oh yeah, but I not anymore. You gonna, thought you were gonna go for like the Iron Lady or something. The Iron Lady. No, I mean I've recently listened to an audiobook about the Falklands War, and the Iron Lady is actually a hero of mine now. Ah, okay, good. Would you anyway. like to know what you have won? Yes. Well, Richard Farnsworth, the star of The Straight Story, I decided to go down that route rather than David Lynch because The Straight mm-hmm. Story is not particularly Lynchian at all. It's uh, it's a very, very conventional film. I'm sure you'll love it. But mm. uh, Richard Farnsworth was famous as a stuntman and actor. I decided to go for a film that I've seen a few times, but I really wanted to rewatch, and that's Barry Levinson's 1984 baseball film, The Natural. The Natural, the best there is, the best there was, and the best there'll ever be. Yeah, Indeed. I've seen that once. I haven't many, seen it for a long ago. time. Yeah, me neither. So I wanted okay. to rewatch it because I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell yeah, I'm in for that. Okay, good. All right. Well, uh, sounds like an enjoyable, very uh, particularly after you know the, the nasty cleaning the sec- palate, the, the nasty sexy uh, Kore- uh, Korean week we had. This sounds like yeah. it'll be a nice wholesome podcast in two weeks from now. Next week, of course, we'll be catching you up with all the stuff we have been watching. Uh, And also we'll be talking about George Miller's latest offering before he goes back to post-apocalyptic Australia, uh, 3,000 years of longing, which uh, I'm looking forward to seeing tonight, way past my bedtime. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, Famine. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.